Well, good morning. You ready for church today? Some of y'all are recovering from last night's shenanigans here at the church, the Christmas festival. Who came to that last night? Was it wonderful? Okay, good. No, forget about it. Okay, something happened last night. It was, it was great. Um, so this morning, I am overjoyed to be able to spend time with you today as we open up God's Word and as we are in the middle of our current sermon series. My name is Trevor Miller. I'm one of the pastors here at Mount Horeb, and um, this is one of my favorite times of year, uh, particularly when it comes to preaching, because we get to tell this story that's been told over and over and over again, but being able to dive in once again and say, God, what's fresh here? What do you want to speak to us today? And I believe because the Bible is a living document, it, it's always speaking to us. It's always sharing something with us. And so this morning, I'm excited to be able to dive in and see what God wants to say. If you've been a part of this sermon series so far, if you remember week one, uh, Bryce Holman did a wonderful job reminding us that as people who follow Jesus, we have the opportunity to be merry and bright to a world around us that is largely in need as they find themselves in the midst of darkness. And he said one of the ways we can do this is recognizing the great love that God has poured into our lives that we have the opportunity to share them with the world around us. Last week, if you came, uh, you got to experience a wonderful musical here in the room. Who came to the musical last week just by... Curiosity, was that fun? Okay, good, good. Glad we had something fun. So yeah, if you came last week, the musical was a great, great experience, and we really keyed in on this idea that as Christians, we have hope. And it's hope not just for us, but it's a hope for the world. It's something that we can share with the world around us. We can be people who are merry and bright. Now this morning, I wanna look at one more reason that we can be people who are merry and bright, and it's not just love, it's not just hope, but it's also joy. It's joy. Now, uh, this is one of my favorite times of season, and as we came yesterday for our Christmas festival, we had hundreds of people here with kids and everything. We had a wonderful time. There was a train. There was good food, a massive screen. We watched, uh, what's the movie called? Polar Express, thank you, until it crushed in the middle of it, but we got it back up again. That was all exciting. We had fake snow, and every child in the, in the place left home nasty from sitting in fake snow, but it was so fun, and it was one of those things at the end of the event, I was like, okay, I'm ready for Christmas. This feels good. Because there's always these little things throughout this season that begin to kind of get us ready for Christmas. All kinds of stuff that we come across. Little hints that Christmas is right around the corner. Like the lights that just went up on the houses, maybe in your neighborhood as you drive around town, you see this kind of joy at nighttime or the peppermint milkshake that's come back to Chick-fil-A. Can I hear an amen? All these little kinds of things. Every school that's holding a, you know, a holiday-themed gathering, party, concert, show, you can buy fruitcake, eggnog, candy canes. All of this is available to us once again during this season. But one of the things that I'm always looking for during this season is when the television shows and the streaming platforms begin to show all of the classic Christmas movies that we all love, right? So all, all of them from Polar Express to Elf, my personal favorite, uh, Miracle on 34th Street, Christmas Vacation, not advocating, just speaking to it. All these great Christmas movies that remind us that Christmas is right around the corner. But I have to take a moment this morning and talk to an annual tradition that should have me in all the holiday feels, but if I'm really honest, it's a confession. My wife's in the room right now and I'm confessing to her. It is not one of my favorite things in the whole world. It is going to pick out a Christmas tree and bringing it back home to put into the house. I heard a couple of amens at nine o'clock too, but it's just not my favorite thing. I get a little bit grumpy when it comes to this thing. And there's a couple reasons for it. I mean, I have to mortgage my house to buy a tree that's been cut down to bring into my house that in a couple weeks will be dry and crispy no matter how much water you give it. I feel it's the same conversation every year. Like, Jenna's not, no, it'll live this time. And within two days, like, it's not drinking any water. It's not, I'm like, it's not, it's dead. We cut it down. And then we put it into our house. It's not just that, but then you get it into the house. I have to turn it 323 times until my wife says, yes, that's the least bare spot. It's pretty straight right now. You can keep it there. 
or living for the next few days with sticky hands covered in steps, smelling like an air freshener, or at the very end of the season, when the tree is all done and we finally take it out on January 23rd and it's dry and crispy and I leave behind me a trail of all the needles that I could spruce up my yard with. It's all those things. And even as I say this stuff, I'm like, Trevor, geez, chill out. It's Christmas. Enjoy it. And I know I'm a Scrooge. I know I'm a Grinch. But when it comes to this part of the Christmas holiday every year, I just can't handle it for all the above reasons. Now, it makes me think right away of a classic movie that comes out every year, 1965, the holiday favorite cartoon, A Charlie Brown Christmas. Anybody love this movie? What? Oh, we're going to clap for Charlie Brown. Okay, cool. Yeah, one of the best movies, the ones that I'm waiting for each and every year. And this whole movie is centered around this one character, Charlie Brown, and all of his frustration over all of his friends around him who are celebrating this Christmas season in certain ways. He's frustrated as he attempts to direct the Christmas pageant, doesn't go the way he has planned. The tree he picks out can't even hold up one single bulb. And so finally, at the very end, after all of this frustration and the grumpy Charlie Brown all the way through, his friend Linus finally says to him, Charlie Brown, you're the only person I know who can take a wonderful season like Christmas and turn it into a problem. And then Linus does a gift to Charlie and everyone else in the show and all of us who are watching by beginning to quote then the Christmas story from Luke chapter two. And he reminds us about what Christmas is really all about. See, the truth is everyone, many of us here in the room this morning, we can oftentimes find ourselves being just like Charlie Brown. Though we have every reason in the world during this season to be merry and bright, many of us, we end up being grumpy old curmudgeons, and I'm the first one in line. And it's something that I feel like God has convicted me of this year. And maybe for all of us, it's something that God can speak to us, that we, during this season, maybe unlike any other season, have the opportunity to experience deep and abiding joy. Because we live in a world that is in need of people who are merry and bright of people who can see this season and exude delight and happiness and cheer because unto us a Savior has been born and his name is Jesus. See, it's funny, maybe I'm the first one in line, but oftentimes as Christians, I find that we are some of the rudest, most bitter, most frustrated people to come across even during Christmas and we have no reason for it. So whether it's picking out a Christmas tree or maybe something more substantial, my prayer this morning is that we would all be able to unwrap the joy that we have in Jesus and be able to live it out each and every day. And so this morning, I want to visit a portion of the Christmas story that maybe you're pretty familiar with, but I think it has something to say to us about this joy and how we can have it in our hands and to experience today. It comes from Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. I'll read this for you. You've probably heard it many, many times. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi, or wise men from the east, came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star that had risen to the sky and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was greatly disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where is the Messiah who is to be born? In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi, these wise men, secretly to himself. And he found, and he asked them something. He found out at the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them then to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. 
As soon as they found him, they reported back to me, he said, I would like to go and worship him as well. As they had heard from the king, they went on their way. And the star that they had seen when it had risen in the sky went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Verse 11, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they presented to him the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, in these 11 verses, we learn of a group of people who have traveled from a long, long distance. The Bible calls it the East to find Jesus. Now, a couple of things that I noticed in this passage from the very beginning. The first one, it might be helpful to us in understanding this Christmas story. First, in verse one, it tells us the magi or the wise men who come to find Jesus, they have come after the child has already been born. Now, maybe in your house right now, or maybe in your yard, you have a nativity set, a nativity scene. I don't mean to burst any bubbles or anything, but we see it in a certain way, right? You have Mary and Joseph, you have the baby, you have all the animals, you have the shepherds, then you have the three wise men who are there as well. Most scholars would agree that actually when these wise men arrive in this location to find Jesus, it's more than likely two years after Jesus has been born. They saw the star rise in the sky, they begin their travels, and about two years later, more than likely, they finally find Jesus in his location. Maybe not in Bethlehem, but now potentially in Nazareth. They come to find uh, the little baby. Now, also in the nativity set, we have how many magi? Three, right? You have three magi. Now again, the scriptures don't give us really any indication of how many people traveled from the east to the west to find Jesus. We typically, throughout church history, have said three because of the gifts that were given. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There was three gifts, and so maybe perhaps there were three wise men. And I know that when they showed up and they gave these gifts to Jesus, they had to say to Jesus, hey, listen, just so you know, this is for Christmas and for your birthday. Just so you know, there's three of them, but we to make sure it's for both of those things. So who were these magi? Like, who were these wise men? Why did they end up in the story? The shepherds, they're just right outside of town. But these individuals travel from so far away from this place called the East. And most scholars would say to us that these wise men were some kind of priestly class from a place called Persia. And they would have tra traveled from what is now present-day Iran 1,400 miles to Bethlehem to look for Jesus. So how did these priests in Persia know to even be looking for a star that might lead them to this Messiah? They weren't Jewish in the end. How did they know this? And simply put, it's because they would have been looking for a sign. Now we're going to go deep for a second, okay? So hang with me here. See, nearly 600 years before Jesus is born, there's an event that takes place in Israel when Babylon, this, this civilization far out east where it becomes Persia and eventually becomes Iran, then was Babylon. Babylon comes in and actually takes over the northern part of Israel. It comes, and in doing so, they have this brutal siege, and they take 10,000 to 20,000 Israelites back with them into Babylon. It's something called the Exile. You may have read the Old Testament and noticed this is a part of the story. So in those 600 years, as those Israelites are taken back into Babylon, they don't go there without these deeply held beliefs that they had held for a very long time that one day they believed, based upon the prophets, there would be a Messiah who would come who would make all things right, who would free them from oppression and who would make the world the way God first originally intended. He was known as the Messiah. And so when you live in a location like that for as long as they did, they would have written about these stories. Some scholars believe they wrote these, many of the things in the Old Testament in that time of exile. They would have talked about it within their families. And so if you were someone living in Babylon as an Israelite, you would have shared this with those around you. 
So potentially 600 years later, maybe this information had passed on into Babylonian society and these individuals, this priestly class, they were looking for the same thing. We've heard about this Messiah who would one day come. Now, these wise men, these magi, were also very astute when it came to astrology. They watched the skies. It was a major part of their, their religion, a major part of the way they lived their life day in and day out. And so something must have happened within the sky. The scripture tells us it's a star that arises at the right time. They notice it and they decide something must have happened, the thing that we've heard about. We're going to go find out where it is. And so they travel 1,400 miles on this journey to find Jesus. Now in the scripture, what we found out is when they make it to this location, they come in, in uh, contact with a terrible tyrant named Herod, who's also searching for Jesus, but for a completely different reason. Herod says to them, listen, if there's another king of the Jews who's in town, that means my job's in danger. So when you find him, I'd like to worship him. Herod doesn't wanna worship Jesus, he wants to kill Jesus. He wants to keep power. And so as the wise men continue on from him, the star finally stops, and where does it stop? Over a house, not a stable not a barn, but over a house, potentially two years later. And they find Mary and this baby. They find Jesus, the one they've been looking for. The thing that is most intriguing to me, though, in the passage is when they get there, the Bible says their reaction is very specific. It says that they were overjoyed. They were overjoyed. Now, in the English, we translate this in one word, overjoyed. But in the Greek, it's very different. In the Greek, it literally means this. They rejoiced with joy that was great and exceeding. How about that? That's a mouthful. Instead, we say they were overjoyed. But no, they rejoiced with great joy that was great and exceeding. They were excited because the thing they had traveled so far to find, they had finally located. And they were joyful about it. You ever experienced this kind of joy? <laughs> the kind of joy that causes you to rejoice with great joy that is great and exceeding. I think that all of us adults in the room, we can learn a lot by watching children and the way they experience the Christmas season. There's such joy there. In particular, if you need one, my daughter Murray is one of those. <laughs> my daughter Murray enjoys everything. She rejoices about everything. And so she comes to school here throughout the week, and every day when she gets out of class, we go across the way to the other building, we find there's a person on staff who gives her a little dumb, dumb sucker every day. And you would have thought she won a million dollars every day. I mean, squeals for a dumb, dumb sucker. At home, she loves to put on dresses and dance in the kitchen. She lights up like a Christmas tree every time. She loves it. She's the kind of person who sits on a, on a, a school morning and eats her oatmeal and says to me, how tasty it is, Daddy. Like, it's oatmeal. It's not tasty. <laughs> but she enjoys it. She enjoys every piece of life. She just has this way of seeing all the good in front of her rather than begrudgingly longing for something else. I don't know about you, but I find myself too often begrudgingly longing for something else instead of rejoicing in what's right in front of me. You see, if we're gonna be people who are merry and bright to a world that is so in need, we must awaken to the fact that joy comes when we're able to see what so many others miss. Joy comes when we're able to see what so many others miss. Like for me, standing in a, a tree lot, I'm the one who's missing it all. And there's joy there to be found. 
Charlie Brown, he misses the entire thing until Linus helps him see the true meaning of his wonderful speech in the movie. Murray's eyes are attuned to it seemingly all the time. There's a star in the sky that's available to everyone, but only a few pursue it. You see, true joy comes when we're able to see what so many other people around us miss. What if joy could be yours? What if there's enough to go around? What if joy could be a reality for us? You see, after 1,400 miles of searching and traveling for this infant Jesus, the wise men find him, and here's their response. They were overjoyed that they had finally found him. Here's what I've found to be true in my life. Joy is worth the journey. Joy is worth the journey. And I want to be sensitive to this this morning. Because I would imagine that in this room, there are many today who don't see a lot of reason to have joy. And they probably have a lot of reasons why they shouldn't have joy. But there's a journey that we can all experience where we can find that joy. It's available to us. There are really four different, there are many, four different thieves of joy that I want to speak to this morning. The first one is this. It's comparison. Comparison is a thief of joy. Many of us, we walk around each and every day with a low-grade frustration, comparing our lives to someone else's, wishing we had what they had as opposed to what we have. And our joy fizzles because our neighbor has the new shiny car, and our friend has the kids who actually make their bed in the morning, who say please and thank you, and who don't eat food on the couch. Everyone else seems to be getting married. I would like to do that. And everyone else gets the promotion. I would like to have that. And in an ever-connected world, this becomes even more of an issue. Because those of us who are on social media, whatever it might be, we see all these other people's lives and we're comparing our every day to someone else's highlight reel. I'm just doing this stuff. Look what they're doing. And so I end up being frustrated and angry with my family. And why? Because I saw one guy who went on vacation with his wife and my wife and I were just trying to get all the laundry done. And we compare. And when we compare, we can lose our joy. And so when I compare, I always find myself falling short. It's a no-win proposition. Comparison is a joy stealer, and it keeps us from being merry and bright in the world that is so in need. We must stop considering all the things that we don't have. And I'm preaching to myself right now. I feel it. We have to stop comparing all the things that we don't have, but instead be truly grateful for the things that we do have that are all around us. Secondly, another thief of joy is fear. I mean, nothing kills joy like imagining all the bad things that could feasibly happen. I mean, everything's going great now, but you can't imagine what could possibly happen. And we've been conditioned over the past three years to embrace fear at every turn. We've been told all of the reasons that we should be fearful. And when that happens, we find joy being something that is very scarce. So whether it's elections or protests or vaccines or news cycles, and I could go on and on, but I don't want to because it does the same thing to everybody. Our blood begins to rise and we can feel the fear creeping in. Instead of embracing fear, we can embrace faith and recognize that God is still at work and that joy can still be ours, even in the midst of the endless possibilities that in all likelihood probably won't come to pass. Joy can be ours. Comparison is a thief of joy. Fear is a thief of joy. And third, oddly enough, I think preference is a thief of joy. C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, I begin to suspect that the world is divided not only into the happy and the unhappy, 
but into those who like happiness and those who, odd as it seems, really don't. There are some people who I've come across with in my life that it just seems they enjoy being angry. They enjoy being frustrated. They enjoy feeling like the world is stacked against them. They embrace it. They hold on to it. They prefer it. There are some people I know that are looking for a fight because they're not in one. People who are more committed to things that they're against than things that they're for. And in the end, they enjoy it. I don't want to live like that. I want to enjoy having joy and living that out each and every day. And again, in the world that we live in, we need more Christians who are preferring to have that as opposed to the other, to live with joy. And then lastly, but maybe most painfully, I think a thief of joy is loss. Maybe the loss of a loved one, the loss of a dream, the loss of hope, the loss of security, the loss of the future that I thought was possible. And it's in these times where we can come to recognize that even though things may never be the same, they can still be good. Even though things haven't turned out the way we wanted, there can still be joy found there. And in my family, um, this Christmas will be our third Christmas without my father-in-law. And I don't really care who you talk to, the same stories in every family that when someone is lost, the sting never really goes away. It may dull a little bit, but it's always kind of present there. And as I've walked alongside of my wife through this kind of thing, it's been such a difficult journey to recognize that there's loss here. And sometimes when there's loss, it's hard to find joy. It becomes really elusive. But here's what I'm convinced of. No matter what thief tries to step in and steal our joy, joy is still available to us. I'm convinced that joy can still be found, that we can rob the robbers of comparison and fear and preference and loss, and we can find joy in our journey as well. Priest and author and theologian Henry Nouwen says it so perfectly when he says this. He says, joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy and keep choosing it each and every day. It's a choice based on the knowledge that we belong to God and have found in God our refuge and our safety and that nothing, not even death, can take God away from us. There's some of these people that I've come across in my life who live this out and show me that this is actually true. That joy is not circumstantial. It's not situational. But it is a choice. It is something that can be apprehended and embraced and it's the ever-present love of God demonstrated to us through the incarnation, the birth of Jesus Christ. And no one can take it away from you. That you, 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 and me, we are loved by God. And it's ours. In the middle of the chaos, in the middle of the disappointments, there's no amount of deficiency, no amount of anxiety, no amount of anger, no amount of loss that could raid that value and worth that God has for us. It's ours. And joy can be found there. I don't know about you, but a lot of times in my life, I find myself trying to justify all the reasons why I shouldn't have joy. And I'm naming them off. This thing, that thing, and this God, and this thing, and this thing. And I'm always reminded of a friend that I met in college that really kind of changed the way that I view joy. And his name was Nathan. And when I was in college at Columbia International University, Nathan was in school with me. 
And a bit of Nathan's story, when he was very young, he had actually fallen through some ice. And as he fell through ice into some water, he had actually died. They resuscitated him as they pulled him out of the water, but he had some pretty major brain damage that took place because of the accident. And so because of that, he was very limited in his mobility. He was limited in his speech. He was limited in his kind of control of his body. And so there was a lot of things that you might have misunderstood about Nathan. And one of the things may have been what he was trying to say to you and the way he spoke to you, but something you could not mistake was the smile on Nathan's face. When you spent time with him, you knew this is a person who was full of joy and it might take him five times the amount of time it took me to get across campus or to class or to something else, but this is a guy who saw joy in the middle of his life and his circumstances. One particular day at CIU, we would have chapel multiple times a week. And so one day I walked into chapel, and I don't know about you, but I didn't feel like singing that day. Maybe some of you this morning are like, yeah, me neither. So I went and sat down in chapel, and we started singing songs. And I, it was one of those days where I was just so frustrated. And again, I can think of all the reasons I didn't want to sing songs to God. I didn't want to speak these words or believe this to be true. And so I sat down and everybody else stood up to start singing. So I stood up too. And I'm, I'm kind of going through the motions. And I realized that right in front of me is Nathan. He's still seated. Not because he wanted to, but it took him much more time to stand up than it took me. And I watched him struggle to get up and then stand in front of me, he took his hand and he raised it in the air and he began to sing louder than anybody else around him. And I felt God speak to my heart and say, listen, if Nathan is somebody you can have joy, you have no excuse. You have no excuse. There are these people who are gifts to us who have gone through difficult circumstances, difficult trials, and still in the midst of it, they find this ability to be joyful because they recognize it's not circumstantial, it's not situational. It's a choice that we make each and every day to apprehend and hold on to joy. The Bible speaks to this in many different ways. Uh, just as the Magi were filled with joy, they were overjoyed at the presence of Jesus they had finally found after such a journey, the New Testament author James writes about this as well. Here's what James says in James chapter one, verse two and four, two through four. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Easy for you to say, James. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. How could James write something like this? Consider it pure joy when you have trials and difficulties. You see, it only takes in one verse to get to this point talking about joy. Chapter one, verse two is what we just read. Now in verse one, all he does is give a greeting and he greets those, the 12 tribes scattered across the nations. He's writing to the early church who find themselves in foreign lands, who find themselves in unpleasant situations, who find themselves facing persecution. And he pens this letter to them. They had every right to be frustrated, every right to be downcast, to be melancholy, to be angry. But James says to them, consider it pure joy when you face trials and difficulties. You know why James writes this? It's because he knows that there's joy and joy is worth the journey. The difficulty and the struggle that many of us find ourselves in on the other side, joy is possible. Right in the midst of it, joy is possible. And it's worth 
the journey. See, far too many of us, we don't slow down in the middle of the chaos, the disappointments, the unfortunate, to be able to find a reason to be joyful. I mentioned earlier some of the movies that come out during Christmas time. My other favorite movie is Christmas Vacation. Not advocating, just talking about it. Now, Christmas Vacation is a classic movie. And there's a scene every year when we watch this movie that has always resonated with me. And it's not Cousin Eddie emptying out his camper in the front yard, though you might think that would be the one. But there's this scene in the movie that has always done something to me when I've watched it. Now, the whole movie is centered around this family, the Griswolds. Now, Clark and Ellen has it invited to their house aunts and uncles and cousins to come and celebrate Christmas, but the whole movie is 97 minutes of mishaps in an interesting family dynamic, which is probably why most of us love it. Because we have a grandma too who like wraps up a cat and gives it to somebody for Christmas. We have aunts and uncles who do these kinds of things as well, and so we relate to it because it feels chaotic, like the family that we have. But somewhere within the movie, all the family begins to leave to go shopping, and, and Clark, the father in the movie, Clark Griswold, heads to the attic to hide some gifts. And in the scene, he goes to the attic and he leaves the door down to the attic and he's trying to get these gifts in certain places, but it's a little chilly outside. So his aunt comes along and realizes it's cold. So she takes it and closes the door and locks him up in the attic. And then everybody leaves. And he finds himself there with no escape, stuck in the attic. Now, at first, he's cold. He's trying to bang on the door, trying to get out. And he realizes there's no getting out until everybody comes back. And so he begins to look around in the attic for something to keep himself warm. Finds mittens, like a, a first scarf and a little funny hat. He puts all these things on to stay a little bit warm. But in searching, he stumbles upon these films from his family. So to pass the time, as he shivers in the attic, he begins to play these films on the wall. It's all these movies of him and his family when they were young. And you watch Clark. You can watch him light up. His eyes get big. You can almost feel his heart exploding as he's remembering all the reasons for joy right in the middle of all of the chaos that's happening all around the rest of the movie. It's this quiet moment that takes place. Every time I watch it, I'm like, yes. That's what this season's about. Rediscovering the joy that's available to every single one of us, right in the middle of the difficulty, right in the middle of the trial. James says, consider it pure joy when you experience trials of all kinds. And in the middle of that quiet moment, all of a sudden it's shattered as his wife comes home and opens the door and he falls to the floor. But James has got something here. He understands something that so many of us miss when he says, consider it pure joy when you face trials because trials lead to perseverance. It's our ability to see things through to the end. And in so doing, we come to find that we have a God who's not finished with us yet. That for Clark, had it not been for getting locked in the attic, the cold, freezing air, time alone, he never would have discovered the gift that was joy right in front of him. Like, what if these trials and these difficulties in our lives are the very things that help us discover something that otherwise we would never see? So consider it pure joy. Not because it's enjoyable, not because it's pleasant, not because it's fun but because trials have a way of growing us and maturing us and strengthening us and teaching us and gifting us with something that good times simply cannot. So James says, it's the testing of our faith that produces perseverance. You see, joy comes from knowing that we have a God who's not finished yet. So if today you're struggling for joy, here's the good news. 
If you're breathing, God's still working. He's not done. He's still working something in you and through you, and joy can still be yours. My family, my kids in particular, that's not true, my wife also, has recently discovered the joy once again of puzzles. I, again, I'm a, I'm a grumpy curmudgeon, but puzzles are not my thing. But they love puzzles all of a sudden. And my grandmother was in town for a couple weeks, and so she had this holiday little festive puzzle. They went over to my mom and dad's house multiple times throughout the week and would stay way too late. I'd be like, Jen, we gotta go. She's like, I know, one more piece, one more piece, one more piece. And so they're putting this puzzle together, and slowly but surely it's getting completed. And I asked my son, why do you like puzzles so much? And I was trying to discourage him. I was just clarification. Like, why do you like puzzles so much? And here's what he said. He said, each piece I pick up might be the one that I'm looking for. What a, that'll preach. I like puzzles because each piece that I pick up might be the one that I'm looking for that has a place right here and it fits right here. I've been searching for so long and here it is. Maybe the reason that James can write about such joys because God is not finished with the puzzle of our lives yet. And there are these pieces that piece by piece, some difficult, some wonderful, but they work together for the completion of what God is trying to do within our lives. And so each day we have the opportunity to say, maybe this is the piece that I've been looking for. Maybe this is what I've been waiting for God to do. And there is joy that can be found there. Maybe this is why the Magi were traveling so far from the east, 1,400 miles to find Jesus, because they knew that if they found the Messiah, they would have reason to be overjoyed to rejoice with joy, with great and exceeding joy. So in the story, these magi bring to Jesus three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And each one of these gifts are very significant within the story of Christ. The first one, gold that they bring to him. This gold represented Jesus's kingship because gold was an appropriate gift for royalty. And so they bring it to Jesus, who is the king of kings, and Lord of Lords. Then they also bring to Jesus frankincense, which was an aromatic resin that was used in ritual worship. And it was appropriate because the Bible tells us that in the very end, before Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They bring him gold, they bring him frankincense because he's worthy of adoration. But the final gift was something very special. It was something called myrrh. And myrrh was a fragrant balm that would be used to repair bodies for burial, which is an odd gift to bring to a child during Christmas. I don't recommend it. But they do. And in bringing this to Jesus, it has a significance that goes far beyond just his birth. Because Jesus' life begins in a cradle, but it, but it ends at a cross. Jesus himself is on a journey of his own that's leading to death and crucifixion. And oddly enough, even at the very end of Jesus' life, joy can be found. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. The writer says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God for the joy set before him. You want to know why Jesus was willing to become a human and walk this earth, ultimately willing to suffer and to die, is because Jesus found joy in doing so. How? 
I mean, how do you find joy in, in being killed? How do you find joy in sacrificing yourself? It's because Jesus knew that his sacrifice, his life, was going to offer a chance at redemption, a chance at the forgiveness of sins, eternal life for those who had placed their trust in him. And it brought him great joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He scorned its shame because he knew what it would mean to the world and all of creation and making all things right once again. See, joy is worth the journey for us to wrestle through, to believe that God's still working. But joy is also worth the sacrifice. But Jesus said, I will give my life because of the joy that it will mean on the other side. So at the very end of Jesus' life, he finds himself with a group of friends in the upper room having a meal together. And hours before he's about to be arrested and falsely trialed and crucified and killed, he's enjoying a meal with his closest friends. And like any Jewish meal, there would have been two things that would have been present no matter what, bread and wine. And so as they're spending time together, Jesus, he takes the bread from the table and he lifts it before them. He says, this, this bread is like my body. It'll be broken for you. It'll be sacrificed for you. And he does it with joy. Then he takes the cup and he lifts it before them. He says, this cup is like my blood that'll be shed for the forgiveness of sins for you and for the entire world. And he does it with joy. It's his broken body and his shed blood that he offers to every single one of us to you this morning, to me this morning, that we might find joy in the sacrifice as well. I'd like to invite those this morning who are gonna help serve in communion if you come forward to the table. God is always present with us, but he's especially present in the sacraments. And so this morning, a fitting end to our conversation today is that we're gonna take communion with one another both here in the room and also online. If you are watching online and you have your elements that we've mailed to, you can get those now as we take part in communion as one church. So this morning, we will come together and remember the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. Everything he's offered to us from his life, his death, and ultimately his resurrection. Would you join me in prayer this morning? God, thank you for your grace, for your mercy. Thank you for so loving us that you are willing to sacrifice your life and do it joyfully. I pray, Father, this morning that as we take part in this broken body and this shed blood, that you would fill us with joy as well, knowing, God, that you are working in our lives each and every day, that you're not finished yet, and knowing that you care about us enough that you've gone to great lengths to offer us new life. So Father, I pray for every person here this morning that is in need of joy. I pray, God, that you would instill within us such delight in you, such delight in your world, and we'd be filled to overflowing. So God, we love you today. We are thankful for you today. And everyone together said, amen.